is not presuming upon God in areas where he hasn't spoken. It's actively waiting and trusting in him to accomplish what he already has said. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Where do you go or consult or get your cues for your relationships or if you're married for your marriage? Where do you go for your marriage cues? Some believers in Jesus Christ actually adopt the foolishness that is called wisdom that this world has for love, for sex, for relationships, for marriage. And Christians, believers, will actually adopt the world's, the culture's definition of what a true or happy relationship can be defined as. For example, the world says, before you get married, you need to sample the menu. Sample the menu before you place the order. Speaking about sex, you need to try it before you buy it. So believers fall for this lunacy and will have sex outside of marriage to just ensure that there's physical compatibility in the marriage bed. Of course, the scriptures clearly instruct us that when you have sex with someone, you're joining together with them into one flesh. And thus, when you sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body. And therefore, sexual immorality is ultimately idolatry. Not only that, but the world says that marriage is only between two partners who love one another. It's a union of two lovers. And that sounds hard to argue against. We as Christians who serve a God who is love, and we are marked by the name Christ as Christians, who Jesus reminded us to love God and love neighbor, it's hard for us to bristle at the word love, and yet, what is being said here by love, a lot is being left out. One crucial element is left out, as it often is by those who twist the truth. And that crucial element is that marriage is not just between two consenting people. It was designed by God to be between a man and a woman, between husband and wife. The world says, listen, if you're unfulfilled or you're unhappy, just get a divorce. And sadly, many believers have bought that sales pitch and they violated the covenant that they made before God who hates divorce. And in seeking to be whole, what they've actually done is tear apart what God has joined together. And in that divorce, they've marred the mysterious picture that marriage is to display to the world and to the church of his unending love that Christ has for his bride. Now, the world may not say this next one as loudly, but certainly, there are many in the world who believe if you really want to be truly happy or fulfilled sexually or in your marriage, you need more than one partner. It may take the form of polygamy or open marriage, but the end result is failing to love and be faithful to the spouse God has given to you for life. Hebrews 13.4 couldn't be clear. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You see, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, that is not a popular message today. And so we today, this is an act of war in this proclamation today. We, we are going against the grain of the culture. We are waging war against the folly of this culture's ideas. And we must not let the culture dictate, define, or direct how we as believers view sex, love, marriage, and life. No, we must let God's word speak clearly. God's word, as it's opened and declared in itself, is an act of war against the ungodly world we live in. And in our text this morning, the reason I'm setting all this up is we pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 15. Last week, if you weren't with us, we saw God establishing his covenant of grace with Abram where he cut a covenant. And I, I think that's where we got the phrase cutting a deal. God cuts a covenant as animals are laid out and God in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the dead animals, not in a mutual agreement where you keep your end, I'll keep my end, but in one unilateral covenant. 
to bless and establish Abram in the land of promise. We saw in in chapter 15 overall that God has promised to bless this man who's been called out of Ur in the Chaldees with offspring that are as innumerable as the stars in the night sky. And that these This offspring would not come through his servant Eleazar, but his very own body. And we saw in chapter 15 how Abram believed God and God credited his faith as righteousness. If Genesis 15 is one of the summit peaks of glory in the scripture, then the text we're going to read today in Genesis 16, coming right afterwards, is a dark valley. You see, as we open chapter 16, several years have passed. Abram is now around 85 years old. He's dwelt in the land of promise, the land of Canaan, for about 10 years. And though God has made all of these promises and he's believed him against hope, he still has no children. There's still no offspring. Abram's waiting, he's watching, and literally a decade has passed. And as many saints often do, you and me included, Whenever God is not on our timetable, whenever God is not at work in the way we're expecting him to work, in the timing we were hoping he would work, we wait, we watch, and we also, as Abram did, we begin to wonder. We begin to wonder, is God faithful to keep his promise? And so what we're going to see today is Abram and Sarai make a grave mistake of listening to the world around them and adopting a practice that was acceptable and normative by the culture around them to their folly and shame. But what we're going to see today is more than just a sinful polygamous sexual encounter between Abram and Hagar. This passage signifies a deeper issue, and it's an issue that affects many of God's people. It's a temptation we are all liable to give into, and that temptation is that Sarah and Abram are not patient to wait for God's promise to come to pass, so they resort to the flesh. They resort to their own devices, and they reap disastrous results. So this morning, we're going to break the text down, as we always do, into smaller sections. We're going to look at four aspects of not waiting on the Lord by faith. What happens when we don't do that? Uh, In this Genesis series, we're applying as we go, and then we'll bring some thoughts up at the end. And I'm not going to give them to you all at once like I normally do. We'll get them one by one in a running sentence. So the sentence goes like this. When we fail to wait upon the Lord by faith, number one, the first thing that we're going to see is that we invent fleshly contrivances. When we fail to wait upon the Lord by faith, we first invent fleshly contrivances. Look with me at verses one through three. First verse one. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now remember that God had promised back in chapter 15, verse 5. He had promised, your very son, Abram, will be your heir. But God had made no explicit promise like this to Sarai directly. Remember, Sarai is barren. She's unable to conceive. And this was considered an intolerable curse in the ancient Near East, to to have the inability to conceive. Not only is Sarai barren, she's also old. The scripture tells us that she's old. And so if she wanted to get pregnant and she was trying to get pregnant, even so, she's probably thinking, you know, that window of time, that window of opportunity has already passed. Even if I wanted to get pregnant, I can't, I'm too old. And so after waiting a decade of no results, we come to see that her resolve and her faith become exhausted. Now, when she and Abram had fled during the famine that we read about earlier, they had gone down to Egypt. And one of the gifts that Abram was given was a supposed dowry from Pharaoh, which included a lot of male and female servants. And we're not sure if that's the exact time that Hagar enters the picture, but most likely. That's, that's what we see. We see them coming back from Egypt with male and female servants. And more particularly, the text explicitly says that Hagar was a female Egyptian servant of Sarai. So she is Sarai's personal servant. In fact, if you're taking note, you want to jot this down as you circle the name Hagar. We're big about name meanings because the scripture is. And the name Hagar means forsake or flee. And that's a little bit of a foreshadowing, isn't it, of what we're going to see happening in this text. 
but it's also maybe an ominous warning for, for Sarai and Abram to run away, <laughs> run away from Hagar. I could say to lots of young men, hey, that girl's a Hagar, you need to run. You just need to run away. And, and some women, you need to know that about some men. Run away, just get away. And so if, it's really one thing if God is incorporating an outsider. If God is the one saying, listen, I'm going to bless you, and this blessing is going to come through this outsider. That would be different. That would be a different concept. In fact, when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, which is also Abram, and David's genealogy, we see some women's names that are all with controversy. Every single woman's name in the genealogy has controversy. And, and that's not a bad thing, that's a grace thing. And so we have names like Tamar. We have Uriah's wife. She's not even named, but it's, you know who it is, it's Bathsheba. We have Rahab and Ruth and Mary. Again, all women with controversy, and two of which do not have Jewish descent. This is an act of God's mercy. God is mercifully bringing women of controversy into the line of Messiah and even women outside of Israel. So God certainly could have included Hagar in his plan to bless Abram with an innumerable uh, offspring, but that would not be the definition of faith. Listen, faith is not presuming upon God in areas where he hasn't spoken, it's actively waiting and trusting in him to accomplish what he already has said. And so notice what she says to Abram, verse two. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, we're all adults here, most of us. Uh, we understand the phrase, go into my servant. It's a colloquialism, which means to have sexual intercourse with her. And the custom in the ancient Near East was that the female slave of the wife could be offered to be a surrogate mother for a barren woman. If the wife was barren, was unable to conceive, then the servant of the woman, of the wife, could be uh, someone who's a surrogate mother. There's sufficient documentation that supports the very acceptable pagan practice in that area and in that time. In fact, you can read it later, jot this down, or look later at Genesis chapter 30. You see that Rachel, who's also barren, she's married to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. She will suggest the very same thing to her husband. This was a norm. It was acceptable. It was ungodly and pagan. And they adopt that practice, assuming that this is what the Lord wants to fulfill his promise. This is a scheme she believes as she builds this scheme, she thinks this will build my family. But what does Abram do? Notice what the text says. It says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, we're not at a marriage conference, so I'm not going to insert any odd marriage advice here. I'm not going to get strange either, where some people take one lone verse and they twist it, which is how you do it if you're a false teacher. You twist one verse and yank it out of its context to make it say something it doesn't say. So let me just say, I'm sorry, husbands. I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to twist the scripture and tell you from verse two that there's a biblical case that anytime you listen to your wife, that's unbiblical and you don't have to. You don't have to listen to your wife. Uh, I'm not going to do that. But here, it really is a foolish thing for Abram to listen to her. However, in Genesis 21:12, God actually commands Abram to listen to his wife. So we can't take this one verse and say, husbands aren't to listen to their wives. Um, if wife, if your husband uses this verse, see me afterwards and we will talk with your husband. But I do want to point this out. As husbands and wives, if our spouse is suggesting something sinful or is beginning to fall into a belief that is scripturally false, false teaching, it's our job as a brother or sister in Christ to lovingly encourage them in the truth and lovingly correct them where they're in error. God has put us in that marriage in close proximity to see their walk, to see if they're beginning to err and to encourage them, to point them back, not to fall into their error. And so Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. I like what Derek Kidner says about this. He says, this chapter marks another stage in eliminating every means but miracle toward the promised birth. It is ironical that after the heights attained in the last two chapters, Abram should capitulate to domestic pressure, pliant under his wife's planning and scolding, and quick to wash his hands 
of the outcome, end quote. I want to make the case that if Abram were taking responsibility as the man that God had created him to be, then the verse should read this way. It should read this way. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and then he lovingly corrected her sinful suggestion, and then he admonished her to trust the Lord and not resort to ideas born in the flesh. And here's what he would have said. My beautiful princess, because that's what Sarai's name means. My beautiful princess, listen. It doesn't matter how the world around us defines love and marriage and sex and success and children. You and I, Sarai, we serve the living God. And we must fear him. We must walk in his ways. So let's keep believing. Let's keep waiting. Let's keep trusting he will fulfill all that he has promised to us. That's what he should have said. But then we come to verse 3. He listened to his wife, verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. There is some language here in the Hebrew that should make our brains start hyperlinking to another event where something was taken and given, where advice from a wife was given to a husband, and where a great, sinful, disastrous consequences, uh, consequence ensued. In fact, we should be in our minds hyperlinking back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3. There are actually four mistakes that were made here, and I want you to jot these down if you're taking notes. These are convicting, and these are also helpful because this is how we begin to invent fleshly contrivances. These are the steps that lead to that. Okay, number one, we misinterpret God's word. We misinterpret God's word. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you know the, the verse, she went on and added to God's word. Yeah, we, we aren't supposed to eat or even touch the tree. God didn't say that. And so the serpent is questioning God's word and Eve is adding to God's word. Either way, there's a misinterpretation of God's word. And so here in this text in Genesis 16, Sarai had misrepresented God's promise to Abram. She's maybe thinking, well, God promised that it would be through my husband, but not necessarily through me. And so she begins to misinterpret. She goes, well, everyone else in the culture is doing it. I mean, I'm not going to be frowned on by my friends. It really doesn't matter. And so she and the serpent and Eve misinterpret God's word. Secondly, another step that we get here is that we create alternative theories. Notice Genesis 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That sounds like an alternative theory to what God had commanded. God had given the command plainly and clearly. You will die in the day you eat of it. The servant says, you will not surely die. This is an absolute alternative theory, an alternative truth. And here in this text, Sarai says, well, it may be that I will obtain children through her. I know this is what God has said, but here's a possibility. See, that was not God's plan. And when we grow tired of waiting, we often start grasping at the alternative truth, the alternative ideas. Thirdly, how do we get here? Blaming the Lord. Consider Genesis 3, 5. The serpent said, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's keeping you from something, Eve. God knows that if you eat this, it's going to be good for you. He doesn't want it to happen to you. He's blaming God. Sarai says, it's the Lord who's prevented me from having children. It's God's fault. I wonder how many times does God get blamed for someone else's sin or the natural consequences of living in a fallen, sinful creation. It's God's fault. Blaming the Lord. Finally, number four, how do we get here? Listening to worldly wisdom. Listening to wisdom that is not from above. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was able to make one wise. She took of it and ate, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her. He ate. So Adam listened vicariously through his wife to the serpent. His wife listened to the serpent, and as Adam and Eve transgressed God's command, sin sadly entered the world and death through sin. They took, they ate. It was given 
to Adam. And here we see Abram foolishly listens to the voice of Sarai, who's been listening to the counsel of the world, and she takes the servant and gives to him. He takes of her and receives her. You see, in the same way, when you and I fail to wait upon the Lord by faith, these are the steps that we take to invent these fleshly contrivances, and they often mimic these four attributes, where we listen to worldly wisdom, where we blame the Lord, we create these alternate truths and theories, and we ultimately misinterpret God's word. Now, there's a second result of not waiting on the Lord. So if you're taking note, secondly, when we fail to wait upon the Lord by faith, we introduce bitter conflict. So let's look at verses four through six. Verse four says, Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, the fact that Hagar immediately conceives proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's not Abram who is infertile. Uh, it is Sarah. She's the one who's limiting the birth of children to the father of many nations. So think about the shame or the embarrassment or the guilt or the weight of that burden that's on Sarah. And there's another weight. Now Hagar her maidservant is pregnant. So the joy that the household may be offering to Hagar is now building envy within Sarai. In fact, David Gusick says in a culture, quote, that so highly valued childbearing, mothering the child of a wealthy and influential man like Abram gave a servant girl like Hagar greater status and made her appear more blessed than Sarai, end quote. So now what happens is there's a contemptuous conflict between the servant and her mistress. She's looking now with contempt. She's looking now maybe with pride and with bravado. Maybe she's mocking her. But then we have more conflict. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my, my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Just side note, I think it's always funny when we sin, we ask the Lord to judge someone else. I uh, just think that's funny. But she doesn't say, may the Lord judge me. <laughs> may the Lord judge between you and me. So now there's conflict in the household between Sarai and her husband. She's previously blaming God for her inability to conceive, even though she devised the scheme, now she's heaping the blame on Abram. And I would say, as someone who believes in authority and submission, that she's not wrong. That Abram was ultimately responsible for the sin that entered his household. Husbands, we are under the covering of Christ who is our authority. And our wives and our children are supposed to follow our example and to submit to us as we submit to Christ who submits to the Father. And so I would argue that Abram ultimately is to be blamed for not standing up for righteousness. But now their relationship is strained. It had already been strained because Abram had a second wife. And God had not yet forbidden polygamy until the law of Moses comes. And even though God had not forbidden it yet, that does in no way mean that the scriptures are commending polygamy. There are some atheists that I'll debate with, and they'll say, well, you see, the scripture, even with the patriarchs, I mean, you have Abram, you have Jacob, and they had multiple wives. And so the Bible says that's a good thing. And I say, the Bible nowhere commends this. In fact, it reveals to us that it's fraught with disaster. If anything, it's showing us the folly of, of polygamy. And so we come to verse 6. Abram could have stepped up and said, you're right. This is wrong. I was wrong. Let me step in. Let me deal with this situation. Let me correct my wife. Notice how he abdicates his responsibility again. May that be a, a good warning for us as husbands. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So rather than responsibly working through this conflict, he says, do whatever you, th you think is right to her. And so... Think of the conflict that's happening. The mistress is despising Sarai, now under duress, the humiliated Sarai, now has authority from her husband to do whatever she wants. And so does she choose 
to be kind and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love? Does she turn the other cheek and say, let me just embrace her? No, she chooses harshness as revenge. Just think about this for a minute. The joy between husband and wife is now marked by jealousy. Bonding together was robbed, and now what's been put in its place is blame. The service of Hagar to Sarai was now scorn. And Sarai's interaction with her maiden, it devolved from care to cruelty. And all of this bitter conflict could have been avoided if Sarai never introduced this idea in the first place. But in addition, even if she did, none of this would have occurred if Abram had wisely ignored his wife's plan and corrected her thinking. You see, by failing to wait upon the Lord, they, they drew up these fleshly contrivances and now in their marriage relationship in the household they've introduced bitter conflict and the same can be true of us when you and I choose not to wait on the Lord but to rely on the arm of the flesh what ends up happening is that we begin to walk in the flesh instead of in the spirit we just had a time of confession and in that time of confession I was reminded how often this week was I relying on the work of the spirit versus the work of Pilgrim. How often have you, not on the work of Pilgrim, how often have you this week been relying on the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh? And see, what happens is we introduce bitter conflict, yes, between each other, but also the war between the flesh and the spirit. We have a holy God. And when he's confronted with unbelief, do you think that builds intimacy and closeness to him? No, it divides it. It separates it. Living by the flesh drives a wedge in our fellowship with God. But it gets worse. Not only do we see these things happen, but number three, when we fail to wait upon the Lord, we incur drastic consequences. Look at verse seven. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, we need to make sure we don't miss the end of verse six. The end of verse six says that Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. And so where did she flee? Now, a couple important things are happening in verse 7. First of all, where is Hagar? It says that she's by a spring of water on the way to Shur. Where is Shur? Shur is on the way to Egypt. So this informs us, where is Hagar going? She's going home. Genesis 25, 18 says they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And so she's heading back to Egypt. Now, let's think about this from Hagar's perspective for a minute. Yes, you and I can be like Abram and Sarah. Let's think about her perspective. She has been the unlikely pawn in Sarah's sinful scheming. And she's finding herself running away from what should be godly people who rightly represent God, but sadly, they misrepresent and malign his character. And I just want to acknowledge that may be some of your experiences here. It's hard to blame someone who flees a situation like that under spiritual abuse. You may have been looking up to a pastor, looking up to someone who had some sort of spiritual authority, maybe a leader in the church. Maybe you followed someone uh, and you've loved their sermons online or their teaching, and somewhere along the line, they misrepresented the Lord. Or more personally, they sinned against you. Or they dealt harshly with you. And so I think a lot of us can identify, we can, we can resonate with uh, her desire just to get out of there. But see, there's something powerfully encouraging here as well, because this is the first mention in Scripture, or the first appearance of what is known as the angel of the Lord. Would you guys circle that phrase in verse 7, the angel of the Lord? Now, this was a physical presence. This was not a voice. This was not a spirit. Later in the text, in verse 13, it says this is Yahweh. And Hagar addresses this angel of the Lord as God himself. Therefore, it's my belief, as well as many other commentators, that this angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, known as a theophany. Now, remember, we learned with Melchizedek what a type of Christ is versus a theophany, a type of Christ is a a story, an event, a person who reminds us of Jesus. Like, oh, that's a really good picture that 
that, that, that typifies or, or foreshadows Christ or the gospel or the cross. Uh, remember, we said that Melchizedek was not a theophany. I, I don't believe he was. I believe he was an actual priest and king in Salem, which is Jerusalem. I believe that was an actual guy, an actual man. But here, I believe this is a theophany, the angel of the Lord, where Jesus appears before he was incarnate as a baby born of the Virgin Mary. And I find it fascinating that the angel of the Lord didn't make his first appearance to Noah. He didn't make his first appearance to Abram. Now, later he'll appear to Abram in Genesis 22, a glorious picture of the gospel. He'll reveal himself to Moses in Exodus 3. And then subsequently to all of Israel, to Gideon, to David, to Elijah, just to name a few. But his first appearance, the first appearance arguably of a theophany is to a pregnant Gentile woman who's running from the people of the covenant because she was mistreated by them. As a Gentile who was a slave of sin running from God, I find great hope in that find great encouragement in that. God is very, very near to the brokenhearted. Now, notice what this angel of the Lord says. Verse 8, he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? By the way, that doesn't mean because he didn't know. Uh, When God asks a question to us in the scripture, he's asking a question not because Adam, where are you? Because he didn't know where he was. He's asking it because the question itself is a question that draws out an acceptable answer to make us reflect on where we're at. Does that make sense? So when God's asking a question, it's not like, where have you come from, actually? Who are you? Where are you going? The question is, I want you to answer this rightly. And so she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I love, don't you, that the Lord reminds Hagar first of her identity. Hagar, servant of Sarai. And then he gently puts the questions to her heart. Where have you come from? What's her answer? Her answer is, well, I'm coming from the land of promise. I'm coming from the blessed household of the man that you have covenanted with. That's where I'm running from. And then he says, where are you going? And her answer, she doesn't even answer where she's going. But the answer would be, well, I'm going to what is safe, what is comfortable, what is familiar, what is outside of the grace and promise of God. Isn't that true? Often when we run from the mercies of God, we find ourselves running away from his promise. And so notice his gracious command to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return and submit. Those are marks of our lives as Christians. The word repentance is is a word that means to turn. Uh, We are to turn away from our sin, and we are to turn to God. And submission, a central tenet to the Christian faith is submission. But it's not just blanket submission anywhere and everywhere. It has some qualifications. Wives are not just to submit to men. They're to submit to their husbands. We as Christians are to submit one to another, not to just unbelievers, but to the church. Yes, we as Christians submit to the government, but not when they begin to interfere with the sovereignty of God over his church and they cause us to sin or to stumble. In those moments, we defy government. And so our example of submission is Jesus who only did what pleased the Father and submitted to him in obedience even unto death upon a cross. That's our example of submission. I know submission, it's very popular on shows like The View. You hear them talking a lot about submission to husbands and how wonderful it is. No, you don't hear that at all. This is, again, this is war. This is counterculture. Uh, this is the truth. And so Hagar is called to go back, return, repent, and submit. This is an act of grace and kindness to her. We have no idea what Egypt had waiting for her. We don't know what the desert had waiting for her. A pregnant woman woman going alone back through uh, the wilderness, so to speak. And so she's going to be cared for. She's going to be covered. She's going to be provided for. And God's going to be with her so that she is no longer mistreated. So notice this promise for Hagar and for her child. Notice verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That sounds very familiar to what God had promised Abram. 
And notice that you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Now, if you're taking note, we're big on names. Ishmael means God will hear. What was it that God heard? It wasn't her prayer, if she prayed at all. It says in verse 11, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Her suffering did not escape the ears or the eyes of Almighty God. But notice what stands out about her son, Ishmael. It says in verse 12, four different things. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, I'm no expert on prophecy, but that sounds bad. That sounds like an ominous omen. And this prophecy, listen, it speaks to the truth that many of the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab peoples, will be nomadic, will be roaming the deserts, will be vast and powerful, and they will war against their brethren, the Jews. In fact, one commentary had this to say, listen to this. The Kurdish tribe of Mecca, from which Muhammad traced his lineage, boasted that they were the true sons of Abram through Ishmael. According to Muslim tradition and belief, Ishmael helped his father Abraham build the temple at Mecca. There in the Kaaba, Ishmael lies buried with his mother Hagar. In the Quran, Ishmael is mentioned several times. In the Bible, we call them chapters. In the Quran, they're called surahs. And in Surah 2, verse 119, Ishmael, along with his father Abraham, is commanded to purify the whole house at Mecca. In Surah 4, verse 161, it's recorded that Ishmael received revelations from Allah himself. And in Surah 19, verse 55, Ishmael is called a prophet. Do we see the drastic consequences that happen as a result of this foolish decision? It didn't just impact Sarah and Abram's generation or the next generation. Try hundreds of generations later we see Ishmael becoming the ancestor to the Arab people. And today, Muslims look back at Ishmael as the son of promise, not Isaac, his half-brother, who would become the ancestor of the Jewish people. Now, certainly, the Arab uh, peoples and Jewish peoples have never had any conflict, right? They've never had any strife whatsoever. Now, If this were the end of the sermon, the end of the story, we would end this sermon in a minor key and most of you would not have an appetite to go have lunch after uh, the sermon. But church, there's good news. You see, even when we fail to wait upon the Lord and we see these schemes getting devised and we see conflict coming up between our walk with the Lord and our friends and we see drastic, devastating consequences, there's still the work of God. And that's number four. Even though we fail to wait upon the Lord by faith, when we do that, we invite God's concern. Look at verse 13. So she called the name, this is Hagar the Egyptian, the Gentile. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I've seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well, so now there's a well that was there, was called Bir Lahai Roy. It, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Abram, or Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 60, uh, 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You see, even in this situation, I see the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. You see, God in his sovereignty could have let Hagar and the child die. They could have died in the wilderness. But God had a gracious plan. And ironically, the Egyptian slave woman, by faith, recognizes who God is, at least in this situation, more than the man who would be the father of our faith. Did you see? She names the Lord, a name that he's not yet been known by in the scripture. She says, you are the God who sees. And she recognized, indeed, that Yahweh was hearing and seeing her plight. God was graciously seeing the one person in this whole drama who seemed to be overlooked. You see, the household could have been rejoicing in the coming birth, but instead they were anxious and tense. Rather than being able to rejoice in her new husband and he and her, Hagar was being boxed out and mistreated. Rather than coming to her aid, 
Abram was leaving her to the whims of his wife's revenge. Hagar was the one person in this entire narrative who was overlooked. Yet God reveals himself to her as the God who hears you and who sees you. And his loving command for her to repent and return is evidence that he would be with her, that he would protect her. And so even though she's trying to run from her circumstance, run from the plight, run from the issues, God says, go back. And I'm going to be at work even in that difficulty. I like what Barnhouse says here to encourage us. He says, if we seek to change our circumstances, we will jump from the frying pan into the fire. We must be triumphant exactly where we are. It is not a change of climate we need, but a change of heart. The flesh wants to run away, but God wants to demonstrate his power exactly where we have known our greatest chagrin. You see, church, as we seek to apply this passage of scripture, it's evident that you and I too can fail to wait for the Lord. And we fall into all sorts of trouble when we look to Hagar, whatever or whoever Hagar is in our life. We devise these schemes in the flesh. We inject inject bitter conflict into our lives. We face the drastic consequences because we didn't submit and wait for the Lord. Now, sometimes it takes different forms and you can nod your head in agreement if it's ever happened to you like this. Sometimes it looks like doubting his sovereignty. Has that ever happened to you? Not if that has happened to you. Or challenging his loving faithfulness. Have you ever questioned God's timing and wondered, Lord, when are you going to come through? Have you ever protested his testing? He puts you into a situation and you begin to protest. Many times we'll defy his reproof or we'll even avoid his gracious promptings. Yeah, that happens to most of us. But church, as we consider these things, here are three remedies for the heart that looks to Hagar. Three remedies this morning for the heart that looks to Hagar. Number one, I want to encourage us as a church, man, if we would do this, even this week, how would this change our spiritual walk? First, meditate on God's word, particularly his promises. What would have happened if Abram had recounted and recited God's covenant back to his wife? How would this story have changed? You see, this morning, you and I have so many reasons to rest and to trust the Lord, no matter what you're going through, and some of us are going through it. And so I want to give a little bit of hope, just a small sampling of God's promises for different areas you might be struggling with. These are real issues that some of you are facing today. I don't want to sermonize that. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to blanket statement that. There are real issues you're going through. There are some marriages here that are on the precipice. There are some households here financially that are dangling above absolute debt and doom. There are some of you physically who are going through such strife and pain chronically that you're ready even to maybe consider your faith as being in jeopardy. There are some of you today who are going through the fire. And I just want to minister to you from the promises of God. So if you're here and you're anxious over finances, consider these words from our Lord. He said in Matthew 6, 31, do not be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows, he sees, he hears. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Be encouraged today that God will provide. He's going to take care of us. For those of you who are worn out, you're you're just worn out. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're trying to attain righteousness in your own strength. You need to take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. He's gentle and lowly in heart you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Take his yoke today. Isaiah 40, verse 29, if you're worn out, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Some of you today may be despairing of life. And Nahum 1.7 reminds us, church, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 reminds us, believer, that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So then trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
And if you're here today and you're just, you don't know what to do. What do I do, Lord? I need wisdom. I need direction. God promises in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And Proverbs 2, 6, and 7 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, not your aunt, not Googling it. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, God has granted to us these very great and precious promises so that we can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world because of sinful desire. So may we meditate on what is true, not what the world provides us hope, not what our flesh dreams up as an alternate reality. May we meditate on the truth, amen? Secondly, what is a remedy for the heart that seeks Hagar? Secondly, keep your eyes fixed on him and not your plight. Often God is allowing the plight as a means to conform us into the image of Christ, so don't run from it. F.B. Meyer, before we get to his quote on the screen, he began the quote by saying, for Hagar, it was Sarah, for Hannah, Penina, for David, Joab, for Jesus, Judas, for Paul, Alexander, the coppersmith. He said, life assumes hard and forbidding aspects, and we're apt to suppose that we shall get rest and peace elsewhere, but it is not so. Nowhere else shall we find the path less rugged or the pillow less hard. And he goes on to say this, to evade the yoke, maybe you're going through it with someone, to evade the yoke will not give us heart's ease. The master's advice is that we shall take his yoke, bear it as he did, remain where God has put us till he shows us another place and bear what he ordains and permits even though it comes through the means often of others. You see, Hagar could run from Sarai. She can't run from the Lord. God was working this difficult situation for her good and escaping it was not the answer. And so that brings us to the third application point. Uh, what a great hope for our hearts. And that is number three, rest in the truth that God is merciful to us even when we sin. You see, the name of this well, Bir Lahai Roy, can be translated as the God or the well where God saw me. And it implies that Hagar, like Moses in the cleft of the rock, got a small glimpse of God. But C.F. Keel argues this should be translated as the well of the seen alive because no one can see God and live. And yet here is Hagar who sees the God who saw her need and was merciful to her even in spite of her sin. You see, God's mercy in seeing her is a picture of his own mercy in our lives. Stephen Cole says, when God meets you in a time of trial, as he did with Hagar, and you see him, your first thought is or should be, oh God, how can you be merciful to me, a sinner? I'm in this mess because of my own rebellion and sin, and yet you didn't strike me down or let me go. You directed me in the way I need to go and promise me your blessing if I will do it. Thank you, Lord. See, even in our weakness and our trial and our sinfulness, God is a God who sees and hears. And in that, we gain a fresh glimpse of his mercies that are new with every sunrise. Now, as we close this morning, we will next week fast forward around 12 years. 12 years later, we see God reiterating his covenant with Abram. And he changes his name finally from Abram, because it's been so hard to go back and forth from Abram to Abraham. He changes his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And he still has uh, no child with Sarah. And so we'll learn about next week, chapter 17, the origin of circumcision and God's plan for Abram's descendants. But until then, can, just for a minute, can we glory as a people in the truth that God pursues rebellious slaves, those who run from his plan and his promise, because such were, for, were most of us. As we're about to sing, I was an orphan lost at the fall, running away when I'd heard you call, but Father, you worked your will. I had no righteousness of my own. I had no right to draw near your throne, but Father, you loved me still. God sees that we've sinned and that we've been sinned against, but God hears our affliction. He doesn't leave us as orphans. The undying love of a God who loved and pursued us while we were yet sinners, not saints. It was at that point furthest from him that Christ 
died for you and for me. Amen? And so let's stand together and just thank the Lord for his mercies to us. And then we'll close in song. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans. We glory in that truth this morning that Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He didn't float or hover along as an angel, but came in the flesh, incarnate, was tempted as in always we are, and yet was without sin. And therefore, we have a great high priest who is in the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as our advocate, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who now can sympathize with where we are at. Lord, we thank you that in our sinful state, in our condition here, you didn't leave us as orphans, but you sent your own son, the son that you loved, to take our place, to bear the penalty that we deserve, to rise again triumphantly, to ascend royally, and Lord, we know one day to return in victory. And so, Father, we pray in the meantime, you would help us to adorn the gospel and to rest in the truth that you pursue rebels, rebel slaves, Lord, who are even Gentiles outside seemingly of the covenant. And yet, Lord, you still are gracious to act on our behalf because of Christ. So, Lord, we thank you. We glory in that, that our salvation is, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. We thank you for that truth this morning. As we sing, remind us of who we are and whose we are. It's in Christ's name we pray. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.